Tom Sumner program. And hey, welcome back, everybody. This Fashion is the Radio Tom for a new program. generation. My, uh, my guest oh, this hour is an art dealer and now fiction that. writer. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint. You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. W.H. Weiscarver, a recent guest on the show, has pledged 50% of the proceeds from his book Twilight of Empire from sales between October 1st and October 31st to support the Tom Sumner program. W.H. Weiscarver, a former National Security Advisor and counsel for the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, pulls no punches, fusing history with political intrigue in Twilight of Empire, the third of four planned novels in the Resurrection Saga series. W.H. Carver's book, Twilight of Empire, shows that the U.S. has all the wealth, science, and resources to solve every issue we face today. Twilight of Empire by W.H. Carver is available on Amazon and Apple Books. For more information and to support the Tom Sumner program, visit whwisecarver.com. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. And uh, again, I uh, remind you that this is, in fact, uh, live radio. We produce the show, um, what, from 9 a.m. to noon every Monday through Friday with a different guest scheduled uh, each hour, and and we do those uh, conversations by phone. And... Although we do have an in-person version of the show coming up, Armchair Politics is heading out and going to hell on the 27th of this month. Um, But uh, it happens from time to time when I have someone scheduled and for some reason we're not able to make the connection to do the interview that we had planned. And I was really looking forward to this one because it was... uh, Well, it was about uh, classic American film noir a book called Street With No Name by Andrew Dickos. And um, anyway, I was I was looking forward to it, but I do have, and for some reason, um, Andrew didn't call in. I don't know if we got our wires crossed about the time, and I, I don't have a number to call 
him but we'll we'll try to reschedule that because i think it will be i think it's an interesting book and i think it'll be an interesting conversation to have to be sure but um in the meantime and what and this is a little bit inside baseball this happens uh, not it happens fairly often and not not every day certainly and, and not even every week but it does come up at least a couple or three times a month where i have something scheduled and it doesn't connect so i having done this for several years i always have something in queue something i can go to instead sometimes it's an encore sometimes it's a pre-recorded interview that just hasn't aired yet as in the case coming up here in just a moment let me see if i can find the uh, the notes on this so i can talk about it in a little bit more if informed way um oh yeah this is this is a fun this is a fun story um a, uh, a former art dealer and docent from the Boston area took great interest in the Gardner Museum heist that happened uh, some, some years ago um, and decided to write a novel about it. And she speculates, because this is an unsolved crime and, and it actually did take place at the Gardner Museum in Boston, um, but she's written a novel in which the protagonist actually speculates as to how it was done and who might have done it and so on. So it's, it's uh, a pretty interesting conversation. Anyway, my guest's name is Carol Orange, and that's coming up in, uh, well, coming up in just a moment. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My, uh, my guest this hour is an art dealer and now fiction writer with a uh, new novel called A Discerning Eye, which was inspired by the real art heist at the Gardner Museum. And uh, her name is Carol Orange, and she joins me by phone. Hi, Carol. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Would you now? This book is is the protagonist is somewhat based on you, and the the story is uh, surrounding a uh, a real life art heist at the uh, Gardner Museum in Boston, I believe. Correct. And I, I guess I'm just wondering: Would you consider this a a historic novel, or is this a true crime story? Oh, it's not a true crime story. It's really a, a novel. And um, I would say it's more a mystery, suspense. It's historic, but, you know, it happened in 1990. So that's relatively recent history. <laughs> so that's when the, the fact happened. It is, but this but this story has, has really become history because... It remains unsolved, right? Correct, correct. Yes, it's un still unsolved 31 years later. What are some of the other significance about this particular heist that, that stand out to you? Well, I, I think um, 
you know, that it's still unsolved. It's also, it's the world's largest uh, art heist. Um, there were 13 art objects that were stolen and their combined value at this point is close to a billion. And, you know, the FBI has been trying to find where the missing paintings are for a long time. And the people of the city of Boston are just bereft uh, at the loss of these paintings from this very special museum that Isabella Stewart Gardner gave to the public. There are so many questions about this, which is probably one of the things that makes it a great story to uh, um, create a novel around. But... How was the theft discovered? Oh, well, it was discovered um, the morning after. Um, so um, two thieves uh, were disguised as policemen, and they were buzzed into the museum by two night guards. They said, uh, there's been a disturbance in the neighborhood. So they got into the museum, and um, they were there for 81 minutes, uh, which is very unusual for an art theft. Um, most, most thieves grab what's closest to the door. So, um, you know, they, um, <laughs> yeah, they really had the run of the place. They could take whatever they wanted, although they took very specific uh, items. So, um, yeah, that's that's the story, um, and it was just, it was discovered the following morning when people came to work, and you know they the, just came the, to work they, and the paintings are gone, right? Right, they came to work and the um, the night guards were tied up in the basement. Yeah, and and the paintings themselves. Um, were they uh, taken from the frames then? Yes, they were cut out from the frames. Um, and, you know, probably the most important painting that was stolen was the concert by Vermeer, and there are only 36 Vermeers in the world. Um, so, yeah, they were cut out from the frames, and the frames were left on the floor um you know there there were some you know flakes of oil painting by Rembrandt that was left on the floor of the Dutch room so but there wasn't enough evidence for the FBI to find out who, who was behind this and these paintings have never showed up no they've never shown up um, you know, that's why in my novel, you know, I have a mastermind who is behind this because I believe there has to be a mastermind who gave the thieves a shopping list. You know, they took um, one Vermeer, three Rembrandts, one Gauvert Flink, five Degas drawings, and a Manet portrait of a gentleman sitting at a cafe. So they stole Degas drawings, 
But right next to those drawings was a Michelangelo drawing, which is even more valuable. And that was not touched. What was significant about those particular items that were stolen? Okay, in I my mean, what, novel, how, how did they, what kind of list was it that, that included that variety of items? Well, precisely, that was the question my protagonist, uh, Portia Malatesta, asked. You know, she analyzed the paintings that were stolen, and she found an underlying theme in all of the paintings and drawings that, was the tension between shadow and light, what the Italians refer to as chiaroscuro. And so based on that finding, based on the finding, um, she drew a psychological profile of the mastermind, uh, saying that this same kind of tension between shadow and light existed inside the mastermind. That's why those particular um, paintings were stolen. Now, the FBI in, in real life, you know, never never did anything like that. And that would tend one to think or or speculate that that there was this this mastermind that you referred to. And that these things were taken for their own collection, and exactly they had a, a certain preference for style and lighting and so on, and that's what informed the list, and not the value of the paintings themselves, as would typically be the case in a, a theft of antiquities. And exactly. More about the famous Gardner Museum heist in Boston from art dealer and novelist Carol Orange, straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annanick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about the famous Gardner Museum heist in Boston from art dealer and novelist Carol Orange. Straight ahead. In the novel, um, the mastermind resonated to those paintings um, emotionally and said, you know, I want those, and those are those are for my own collection. They they have a specific meaning for them. I mean, the thieves had to go out of their way to the first floor because most of the most of what was stolen, you know, the artwork was on the second floor in the Dutch room and in the short gallery. But the Manet portrait was in the first floor in a very crowded room uh, where the walls are just covered with art. And they selected this Manet portrait of a gentleman at the cafe, and half of his face is in shadow. And, you know, so he in particular, I think, resonated to the uh, mastermind. That's why he was on the shopping list. It was unusual to, um, I mean, they did have 81 minutes inside, but they didn't touch the Italian Renaissance uh, paintings and drawings, which are much more valuable than the Dutch paintings and the Degas, much more. Now, if I'm to believe uh, television and movies, <laughs> yes, <laughs> art, art thefts, usually the paintings are out of the country within 24 hours. Do you right. <laughs> do you or mm-hmm. Portia maybe in the book speculate that this was um, masterminded by someone fairly close to the Boston area and the Boston Museum? No, um, I definitely think that the uh, faux policemen were Bostonians, probably connected to the mafia in some way. But no, I, I think, you know, in my novel, the um, antagonist or the mastermind is in Colombia, where, you know, in 1990, the drug trade is the cocaine business is very, very uh, prominent. And so the mastermind is connected with the drug trade in Colombia, and they have a connection to Boston, where you know, cocaine is then dispersed, uh, sold to people in the local area. What was it about this particular heist that that made you, Carol Orange, decide, you know, I really need to write a novel about this? Well, I was uh, an art dealer at the time and um, in Boston, like my protagonist. And um, I just loved the Gardner Museum, um, but I also was very impressed with Isabella Stewart Gardner. She was like an amazing woman who collected art and built, <clears throat> built this palace 
um, it's a Venetian palace in the interior. It's so gorgeous. So she built this palace to hold the art, and she lived there. And she was really remarkable. She studied with Bernard Berenson, who was the leading Italian Renaissance scholar at the time. And he taught her, that's where the the title of the novel comes from. He taught her to have a discerning eye. And um, so she learned everything she could from Berenson, and then she went on to buy art on her own. Um, and she, um, you know, bought the concert, premieres the concert in Paris at an auction house without Berenson's help. And then aside from that, she also um, sought out at that time contemporary artists like John Singer Sargent and James Whistler and Anders Zorn. So her collection is not just Italian Renaissance art. She was really amazing. She didn't have, you know, as much money as William Randolph Hearst did for example, who built um, this palatial mansion on in California. And he was not like Isabella. He did not study with leading experts. He just bought whatever he liked. And his collection is not worth very much at all. I've been there. It's really not very exciting. The architecture of the place is beautiful. But, you know, it's really, you know, it's nothing like the gardener. So there were no other women at the time who were um, collecting art and making it ultimately available to the public. So I had great, I still have great admiration for Isabella Stewart Gardner as a person. Was she living there at the time of the heist, and, and was she in the building when the heist happened? No, no. She had died, like, oh. um, in the early uh, 20th century. Um, so thank goodness she wasn't alive, because she would have been absolutely devastated by this. Um, so, no, she had passed away, but she left this beautiful gift to the city of Boston, and um, she was not originally a Bostonian. She had been born in New York, and she had married someone named Jack Gardner. She was a steward <laughs> from New York. Anyway, she was formidable. I mean, you know, she really knew what she needed to do. She loved to travel. She was kind of daring, a little bit outrageous. The Boston matrons at the time, um, society matrons, were, you know, a little shocked by her. She, she, was, <laughs> <laughs> she was ahead of her time, Isabella. <laughs> well, now, with the, with the Gardner Museum, you said there were only two guards there. They let in these... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, fake policemen, and they were tied up and and, uh, uh, secured. 
while the thieves went about selecting the items and cutting the paintings out of the frames, but you said the frames were on the floor. There wasn't any other security? There weren't any alarms attached to the paintings themselves or the frames themselves? And there were just the two guards? No, there was an alarm system. Um, but they weren't attached to the frames, and it had been the the thieves, um, you know, cut the alarm system after they tied up the guards. Um, you know, they they cut the alarm system before they they went around the museum to steal the paintings. So um, there were two night guards, and they were um, graduate students at the Berkeley School of Music, which is located relatively near the um, museum. And, you know, having students as night guards may not have been the wisest decision, let's put it that way, Um, you know, because they responded to the policemen saying, oh, there's been a disturbance in the neighborhood. We have to talk with you. Um, you know, that that just seems a little, you know, out there. Um, why would policemen have to talk with people inside a secured museum if there's been a disturbance in the neighborhood? I, I don't, you know, they, they just buzz them right in. Well, it's, you know, it make, sounds like the, the thieves, at least, had a pretty good idea of um, what the security arrangements were and knew that that ploy might be successful because these were, you know, basically college music students, you know, working their way through college and not serious security people. And and also that they would have known that the, the frames weren't uh, attached to an alarm system and that they could just yank them off the wall and cut the paintings out. Correct. You're absolutely right. The, you know, the, the mastermind must have known this and conveyed that to the actual thieves. So or I would suspect it's possible that the thieves did their homework before, you know, committing the crime. Well, they might have, but I I do think that um, I do think that the mastermind was behind it, and um, you know, the fact that the thieves cut out the paintings doesn't show that they really knew that much about art. There were other ways to remove the paintings from the frame um, that, you know, I mean, it's... That would have been as uh, quick and efficient? I mean, that's generally how mm-hmm. that's portrayed, is that it's done yes. for expediency. Yes, but they had the run of the place, you know. Yeah, they were there true. for 81 minutes, and they could have taken... Um, a little more time and a little better care with how they were handling these valuable objects. So I think the thieves definitely, you know, had a couple of dry runs through the gardener before they did this um, so that they knew where, you know, where the uh, alarm system was at the desk and they knew 
you know, that there would just be two night guards and they knew what floors and locations um, the various paintings were. Yeah, I'm sure they did some dry runs. Now, in the novel, um, the protagonist, Portia, um, goes to the FBI with some theories and and they end up heading down to uh columbia and and working with interpol did you form any conclusions about this or did anyone and and inform the fbi of of uh any suspicions about who and no no that's that's totally my imagination i mean that's (laughs) (laughs) that's the novel I mean, I I knew about Colombia. I you know I used to travel to South and Central America when I worked for the Polaroid Corporation in Boston. So you know, and I would go there. I went there before Pablo Escobar took over Medellin and made it you know the cocaine capital of the world. Because I really loved um, Colombia and its people, um, you know, I followed everything that happened with Pablo, the years of Pablo Escobar. And, um, you know, my heart broke for these people because the Colombians that I worked with and knew were, were really wonderful people. Is this your first book? Yes, it's my first novel that's been published. Um, I have written other books. Um, well, I wrote a biography of the French novelist Georges Sand, who I guess in spirit, she was ahead of her time. She was very much in spirit like Isabella Stewart Gardner, just. She, she was really uh, an extraordinary woman, you know, who um, lived in the 19th century. So I wrote a biography of her, but it was, you know, I didn't try to have it published. <laughs> so so this is my second book, actually. Um, yes. <laughs> well, I, I, it begs the question, was this a story you were just burning to tell? And and do you have the bug now? Are, are you going to start looking at other heists in in unsolved uh, theft of antiquities? Yes, um, I'm working on my on a sequel to this. I mean, this book is published; it's available everywhere books are sold, and there's an audio book by the wonderful actor Campbell Scott and his wife, Kathleen McElfrish. And Campbell has a golden voice. He happens to be the son of George C. Scott, but he's a wonderful actor in his own right. So the sequel is actually uh, about Nazi looted art. Um, And, you know, because Hitler and Goring were the largest art thieves ever. Uh, I mean, maybe they were rifled by Napoleon. I'm not sure. But they were really, I mean, they were just horrible the way they went about 
stealing great art from all these European collectors at the time. So my second novel um, will take place in Germany, but in 1992, not during the war, but it's, you know, the aftermath of World War II and the conditions of the art market um, in Germany at that time. I just had a conversation with a guy who'd written a book about that very thing, um, and, and talking. Really? And, and ta- <laughs> yeah, talking. And I'm, I'm trying to think of the title as as I'm setting this up, but basically the premise of his book was that all of that art looting began with the seizure of property from Jewish collectors and dealers. Correct. It wasn't. Exclusively, they weren't exclusively Jewish, but mostly but they be, were Jewish and collectors. It, yes, and and it began with that certainly, and then as they moved across Europe during the war, many right. other pieces were added to that collection. But it it started primarily with the seizure yes. of all the assets of of Jewish people that were rounded up. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, you it, you must. Um, let me know the name of the book. I think I've, um, you know, I've read a lot on the subject, um, so I would love to know. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's been a fair amount of restitution um, of that stolen art for families, uh, you know, the descendants of the people they were stolen from. But there's still an enormous amount of looted art, Nazi looted art out there. That is so interesting (laughs) that you um, spoke to someone recently about that. must be on people's minds. Sorry, I stepped away for a minute. I wanted to see if I could put my hands on that book and uh, Uh, give you a, a... title and author and and it it just escapes me for now but uh um but i but i did want to ask that this story was also uh part of a netflix series or inspired a netflix series that's correct that's correct um you know um yes which i watched and you know it's quite good it's quite good because you know they interviews a lot of the suspects, um, and uh, you know now with the death of Bobby Gentile, who was the last uh, of the FBI suspects. You know, no one knows to this day where the artwork is. Did they speculate in that series? As, as um, you did in your new novel? Um, I'm sorry? Did they speculate in Ab- the series? About mm-hmm. who might be behind it and where the paintings might have ended up the way you have in uh, your novel? No. No. No, there was no speculation like that. It was, you know, really interviewing some of the suspects and their lawyers and, um, you know, they it it just went into the um 
it, it, what happened at the at the Gardner Museum. Um, so it, you know, it left you hanging. <laughs> Where are those paintings? Whereas in my novel, you know, I do speculate where the, uh, well, I do more than speculate. In my novel, Portia Malatesta helps to solve the crime because uh, it's, it's a wish, you know, that those paintings will ultimately be returned to the Gardner Museum. My hope is that the progeny of whoever the mastermind was will get them back to the gardener after their father passes away. That's my hope. And that's actually based on a true story in Germany where one of um, Hitler's art dealer's sons passed away and 150 pieces in his collection in Munich were returned to Germany. So it, it, can, it potentially can happen. Well, this is a, a fascinating story, and it's um, the book, uh, the novel is called A Discerning Eye, inspired by the real art heist at the Gardner Museum in Boston by Carol Orange. And uh, Carol, we're, we're just about out of time. I feel like we could talk about this for a while, and I really would like to... Uh, look around and see if I can track down uh, the the title and the author of that book about the uh, Jewish uh, art heists. Um, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and about the book and, and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do, Tom. It's um, www.carolorange.com. <laughs> yes. Well, that's pretty easy to remember, Carol. <laughs> well, Carol, thanks so much for sharing this, uh, your time and, and this story and some of your speculations with me and the uh, listeners this morning and, of course, in your book, uh, A Discerning Eye. Um, keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Tom, for the pleasure of being interviewed by you. Um, I've really enjoyed it, our discussion. All right. Well, thanks, and uh, and hopefully we'll talk again, and I, and I'll find out about that uh, about that title and author for you. Thank you so much, Tom. All right. Have a have a really good day. All right. Okay? Thanks. Bye bye. All right. Bye. Again, that was uh, Carol Orange author of A Discerning Eye, which is a novel inspired by the real art heist at the Gardner Museum in Boston. And uh, the protagonist, Portia, is much like Carol Orange herself, a Boston art dealer and docent. And uh, we'll have more of this on the program. From the Tom And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now.
and now, and now too, and even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org.
uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. But Old Weird Harold and I, Old Weird Harold, we called him that because he was 6'9", weighed 50 pounds. We used to use him to get the football out of the sewer. We used to go to every horror picture in the world. I'm telling you right now, we would go and we would see Frankenstein. We'd walk 100 miles to see Frankenstein. And mind you, we never saw the monster once. Never saw him once, because we were too scared to look at him. And we had the best seats in the movie. We used to sit right up front. I mean, right up front. That's where you can see everything. You just look right up front there. And we'd say to each other, you going to look at the monster this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, don't lie now. If you're not going to look at him, say that. You might as well get right on the floor now if you're not going to look at him. You didn't look at him the last time. Yes, I did. Don't lie. Put it on the wall. Look out. That's where we stayed for 12 days. Used to go home with 100 black juji fruits all on our backs. Yeah. So... My mother, we used to stay over and over and over trying to get to see the monster, but we couldn't do it. We were too scared. And my mother used to come for me. Would you come home? Get up off the floor and come home. You know, and the guys would rise. Hey, cuz, your mom came for you again. You shut up. So my mother said one day, she said, I'm not coming for you. That's all. You know, you'll come home yourself. Walk on the Ninth Street Bridge in the dark by yourself if you don't know how to come home. Oh, mom, you'll come home for us. So... We were watching this one picture, and it was, it was a heck of a picture. It was one of the, one of the greatest. They, they had uh, Frankenstein, Wolfman, Dracula, the Hunchback, the Mummy. Everybody was in it. And Harold and I stayed on that floor. Our eyes were closed all day. We never came up one time for air. Every time there was somebody on that screen, we didn't want to see. The Mummy's in there now. Oh, we don't want to look. We don't want to look. And we sat through about 12 showings of the same picture. You gonna look this time? No, get up off the floor. No, I ain't getting up nowhere. It ain't gonna get me. So, finally, during the cartoon, I got up and I looked around. And I said, hey, Harold, there's nothing here but grown-ups. And Harold said, yeah. Because that's what he always says whenever I'm right. He's my closest friend, you know. I said, ask that man what time it is. Hey, mister, what time is it? It's 10 o'clock. Oh, Harold. Oh, Harold, we're in trouble. 10 o'clock, yeah. 10 o'clock, that's when the monsters come out. And my mom didn't even come for us, man. Well, she said she would, yeah, but she's supposed to come for us, man. She's supposed to let us go home at 10 o'clock with all the monsters out of thing. Man. And we walk out of the movie crying, oh, we got home at 10 o'clock. Now, the walk home, Ninth Street Bridge has no lights whatsoever, which is highly, well, it's the only way to get home. 
And we are sick. You're talking about two scared kids just walking, you know, arm in arm, not even picking our feet up off the ground because we want to be ready. If the monster touches us, we want to be ready to jump straight up to heaven. You know, when you pick one leg up, you take a chance on going sideways. You know, and we got our leg. We're just dragged, sending our toes out six feet ahead of us like radar. Kids coming. Kids coming. And I'm telling you, really scared, ready to go any second. And I bumped into Harold. Bump. I said, Harold, did I bump into you? Harold said, no. I said, don't lie to me now, Harold. Because if I bumped into you, say that I bumped. Even if I didn't bump into you, Harold, say that I bumped into you. Because if I didn't, we're going to get eaten alive. You know that, don't you? Harold said, well, you bumped into me. I said, okay, don't lie anymore. Now, I don't know the name of the wino that came out of the alley that, that uh, emptied onto the 9th Street Bridge. I don't even care what the guy's name is, man. All I know is that he was wrong. That's all I can say. He was pure D-wrong. You just don't walk out of an alley that empties on the 9th Street Bridge without making some sort of announcement. Warning, little kids. Look out, little kids, coming home from the Ashton movie after seeing a whole lot of horror monsters. There's just nobody that can hurt you. It's just a little old wino. And he came out. Now, I'm sure while filling out the accident report on this man that the doctor said, what happened? I don't know. It was just four feet, ran right up my chest, danced on my head for a half hour, and then ran straight down my back, doctor. What, did they say anything? Yes, they said, ah! Did you see them at all? Yes, it was a little kid riding on top of a tall, skinny one, and he was beating him with a stick, saying, faster, faster, you fool, you fool. was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. alone when each day is through yes I'll admit that I'm a fool for you because you're mine I walk the line as sure as night is dark and day is light I keep you on my mind both day and night and happiness I've known proves that it's right Because you're mine, I walk the line
You've got a way to keep me on your side. You give me cause for love that I can't hide. For you, I know I'd even turn the tide because you're mine. I walk the line. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. Hello darling, this is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and you're celebrating Schlocktober with Tom Sumner. From the Well, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to say thanks to all my guests, uh, starting with the um, uh, art dealer and now fiction writer, um, talking about, well, her new book, A Discerning Eye, inspired by the real art heist at the Isabella Gardner Museum in Boston. And uh, it... It was um, an interesting conversation with uh, Carol Orange. And before that, of course, we talked with, uh, had, a, had a really fun conversation with Alan Yeck, the author of C is for Corruption, an ABC book of American politics, or as it's been described, a children's book for adults. And we started out this morning with uh, John Poland from uh, 21st Century Democrats talking about a recent study they did showing, uh, well, disappointing turnout in 2020 by Democrats, uh, primarily in factory towns in uh, about 10 states, including Michigan. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that uh, variety, and I hope you have a great weekend. I will be back Monday with another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And that's uh, Smokin' George Winters tickling the ivories, letting me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But I closed up uh, the show today with um, Leonard Nimoy in the Schlocktober pick. And for the last week and a half or so, it's been all Star Trek people because of William Shatner going to space. Next week, we'll have a bunch of old and new favorites in the Schlocktober. Good night, everybody. The Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.